the Yucatan Peninsula is uh, in kind of the southern end of Mexico. It's the ancestral home of the Mayan people. It was inhabited for many years before the Spanish showed up. But when the Spanish explorers arrived in the area, they, they had to try to figure out um, how to learn and speak with the, the, the Mayan people, uh, their own language that was totally foreign and new to them. There were no interpreters. There was no recollection or history of um, learning that language. They kind of had to play it by ear. And one of the things that they kept doing, they wanted to know what the land was called. And so they talked to the Mayans, and they were trying to probably act out or to express, like, what's, what's the land called? And the people kept saying, Yucatan, 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 back to the Spanish explorers. And so the Spanish explorers went back home and said, oh, we, we found the land of Yucatan, and this is, this is the land. And as they started learning the language of the Mayans, they realized that Yucatan means, I don't understand you. <laughs> and so we have a whole, because of misunderstanding. Because this is where misunderstanding leads. It can lead down some pretty wrong roads. And we end up with misunderstandings that just become sort of the common way of speaking. We, we still call it the Yucatan Peninsula to this day. We end up with Yucatan, but don't really bat an eye at it, not knowing that it's really just a misunderstanding. But I would argue, I, th- I, would, I think it gets fairly misunderstood. And we have misunderstood it in, in many ways and in a very predominant way that we just kind of absorb it. And I will admit, I mean, we did this Sermon on the Mount uh, three and a half years ago, so it's, this is still relatively fresh. And, and I would even say uh, that in his 30s, he didn't arrive at his theological uh, finale. Verse 17. Do not uh, so like to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And by the way, the front end of this is going to be very nerdy. Uh, we've got a lot to parse through. We've got a lot of stuff to do. And then we'll get through it. Um, but it's going to be a bit of a heavier slog uh, than sometimes we've had. Um, and most of you are like, we have that every week. Why are we doing um, But I think there's some, there's some work to be done. So Jesus says, do not think something. Which means people are thinking what? That he has come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? He's, he's addressing uh, what some are coming to think or some that are expecting. And throughout Jesus' ministry, this will be a bit of an ongoing deal around things like Sabbath and cleansing and fasting. There's all these debates that he has about his uh, application or um, what, what he's doing and how the Torah teaches it. And once again, once again um, let's also remain, maintain context uh, People might be asking this because at this point in history, if he is this Messiah, if he is this one sent, most had expected that to be a military leader or a religious figure, somebody that would go through the ranks of maybe of the Israeli military or go through the ranks of the Pharisees or the Levites and the priests and uh, the Sadducee system. But we have this kind of rogue rabbi, and the people that he interacts with right away are fishermen, those who are diseased, those who have demon-possessed. Like, it's, it's not who everybody expected. And then he comes to give the sermon, and he starts blessing all the people that no one expected. And at some point, there's sort of this question of, all right, what, what are you doing? Like, this is, not, this is not the Torah. This is not what we expect. These are not the Torah-observant people. These people can't even worship with us. 
Now, we also have to hear, when we hear the Law and the Prophets, what they might hear and what we might hear. Uh, the Law and the Prophets is one way to uh, divide the Old Testament. Uh, so the Jewish people, uh, the Old Testament is really divided into three, um, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. At this point in time, the Writings is still not quite canon. Uh, it's kind of becoming the last book around this time. Actually, by the time I think Luke writes, it is finalized. Um, so it happens around this time. So uh, the Writings are Psalms and wisdom literature, stuff like that. And so uh, a lot was boiled down to calling it the law and the prophets. Now, the Torah, that's, that's the word law in Hebrew, and the Nevaim, which is the prophets. Now, it's really important for us to know, the word Torah just means teaching. Uh, it is a Greek byproduct that we call it the law, but it is not a Jewish product that we call it the law. Actually, they wouldn't probably call it. They have a different word for the word law itself, but they call it Torah teaching. And so the Torah is the first five books, technically, of the Bible, um, of our Old Testament. And so the question and we should hear, have you come to abolish the, the Torah, the, the, the Torah and the Nevaim, the, the prophets? And that's an excellent question. Has Jesus come to do that? Now, how I've been taught, and I think how I taught it last time, is that when Jesus came to fulfill the law, it was the idea of Jesus like accomplishing all the law, that God gave the people the law. He gave the people in the Old Testament law. He was expecting them to do it all perfectly all the time, but we just couldn't because we're dirty, rotten sinners, and Jesus fulfilled it all, and the law is like this video game of 613 levels, and Jesus beat the video game for us so we don't have to play the game anymore, right? That's sort of the, the modern equivalent. That's, that's almost how I've, I've heard it and taught it myself, which isn't always a historically theological position to begin with. But let's talk about abolish and fulfill. Uh, so uh, the, we have these word categories. Because honestly, I will say this will play a big role in how we interpret the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And abolish and fulfill were languages that existed in Jesus' time. They're not exclusive to Jesus' using. They're not exclusive in um, historical context of rabbinic or Jewish literature. Uh, so we have things like Heriot 1.3, if the Sanhedrin gives a decision to abolish, in the Hebrew words la'akor, uproot a law, by saying, for instance, that the Torah does not include the laws of Sabbath or idolatry, the members of the court are free from a sin offering if they obey them. But if the Sanhedrin abolishes the la'akor, only one part of the law, but fulfills la'kayim, the other part, they are liable. Now, if this, how does the Sanhedrin fulfill the law, or even a part of it? Does it mean... They do the law so it's no longer required of anybody else? No, that's, it's, not, it's not the context at all of how the Sanhedrin would fulfill the law. It simply means that they would teach it and they would obey that part or both. The Perkeia vote, 414. So away to the place, uh, go away to the place of the Torah and do not suppose that it will come to you, for your fellow disciples will fulfill it, the Lakaim, in your hand and on your own understanding do not rely. And once again, fulfill. What is the context here? And, and I would argue here, fulfill means to explain or to interpret the, the scripture correctly. It's not about accomplishing it so that no one else has to do those things. So quote two, seven, if this is how you act, you will never in your whole life, you have never in your whole life fulfilled the requirements of dwelling in the sukkah, and this, which causes him not to do what it really intends. He's interpreting it, so he's not actually obeying it. So fulfilled, in a sense, is, once again, not about finishing the thing, but to be obedient to the thing. 
Last one, per kevot. Whoever fulfills the Torah when poor will in the end fulfill it in wealth. And whoever treats the Torah as nothing when he is in poverty. So here, once again, it means obey. It's definitely the opposite of fulfill in order to do away with. To fulfill it is actually to, to do it in a way that is really just being obedient to that thing, to, to, to interpret it as God desires and to obey it. We even get New Testament usage. They were doing a practice of uh, you, were, you were commanded to honor your father and mother and, do this, and provide for them and stuff like that. But people were going, well, that money is dedicated to the Lord, so I can't provide for my parents anymore. Um, so uh, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, uh, making void. And so for the sake of your to have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. For your, and so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void or abolished the word of God. So we get this language about disobeying, about abolishing, about, and, and so we see um, these two words and, and what tends to be, and this will be the next slide, what tends to be the sort of parallels of abolish and fulfill. Let's jump to the one that's already filled out. There we go. And so in ancient usage, it seems like in Hebrew context, when you use language of abolish and fulfill, this is really what we mean. To abolish something is to disobey it, to, to misinterpret it, and to teach it wrongly. That that was a common usage of that term. And to fulfill it was to obey it, to, to live it out, and to correctly teach it, correctly interpret it, to, to do those sort of things. Cool. And it's really driven home by verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. So those who relax teaching and relax obeying the law are called least. And those who obey and teach, it's the same categories that we have in all the other contexts, is called great. So it's, a, I would argue, a pretty straightforward parallel. So there's two actions, yes, the least and greatest. Practicing and teaching is fulfilled. Cool? It's the context that we enter into. So by understanding this idiom, I think we see that Jesus is emphatically stating that his intention is not to interpret, his intention is to interpret God's word correctly and to correctly live it out, not to undermine it and to throw it out when his life is over. And why is Jesus emphasizing this point? Most likely because the Jewish leaders had accused him of undermining the Torah in his very teaching or preaching, that Jesus was responding to that he was not misinterpreting the law. So any idea that Jesus was doing in his life and death was to do away with Torah itself. He makes it abundantly clear by verse 18, that is not what he's come to do. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Pop quiz, have heaven and earth passed away? Okay, good, I hope we're in agreement with that. No, it has not passed away. So. That's not what he's come to do. Like the Torah still has some role, some effect. Now, to get into the iota and the dot, just for the nerdiness of those who want to know, um, iota is the smallest letter in, or uh, smallest marking in the Greek, uh, and a dot or kerea is, is the smallest marking in the Greek. 
Um, but even most translators would say this is probably delivered in Jewish, which is much more an idiom to say every yod or tittle, uh, which if you know your King James, they already went that route. Uh, so every, every yod and tittle, every jot and tittle, uh, jot and yod, uh, J's and Y's in German, it's a long history. So even the King James it defaulted to the Jewish saying and how they translated it. And so it's these little markings. So it's basically saying even the smallest marking of of our, our manuscripts aren't going to go away, that, that, the, that the Torah still has a work to do. Now, let's jump into the greatest least paradigm, because I think it matters as well. Jesus said, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, once again, it's important to know that there were a lot of debates at the time around what was considered the least commandments, what was considered the greatest of the commandments. And we see those in Jesus' day. People come up to Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? What is, what is uh, and some of the language sometimes gets used around the weightiest. What is the heaviest versus the lightest commandment? What is, what is the thing that's the most important? And he would answer, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, um, and Jesus would accuse the Pharisees of saying, hey, you guys neglect the weightier teachings of the law. You guys reject the weightier matters of the law, like mercy and justice. And so we have this language of heavy and light or um, least and greatest. And there were often theoretical conversations of here are two laws, and they would quiz almost the rabbis of how you would interpret which one really matters, which one's the heavier, which one's the lighter. And once again, we see this in Jesus' life. Uh, So he's healing on the Sabbath, and it turns into a whole debate about donkeys and holes, because that was one of the paradigms they used of going, does obeying the Sabbath matter more, or does helping a donkey that's in a hole matter more? And so you had these sort of ethical law debates of what was the most significant. So light commands are not of great significance. Heavy commands are of great significance. And then, listen, the, the Torah is given for a purpose. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. And it's not going to disappear until that purpose is accomplished. And Jesus doesn't come to cancel or to nullify it, but to, I would argue, based upon context, to properly interpret the heart of it. To be Torah in person. That if God's desire is for his people to be walking around in human form, it's Jesus. Like that is um, God in flesh walking around. As one pastor puts it, everything you see in Jesus's life and Jesus's teaching is a perfect summary of everything the law was trying to get people to do since the beginning. And those who relax the teachings of the law will be called light. And those who teach his commands, light and heavy, will be called heavy. And for those of you who want to know, the lightest command, uh, the interpretation, just so you know kind of the, how these things kind of play out, Deuteronomy 22, 6. If you come, I don't think I put this in here. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting in the young of her eggs, you shall not take the mother with the eggs. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Like, we understand why that's a light command, right? Hey, just don't take the bird when you take the eggs. That's, that's the light command of the law. With the blessing of that it may go well with you, that you may live long. Which is the same blessing on like some of the heaviest commands. Honor your father and mother, so that it may go well with you and you may live long. So you have the same even promise. Now, what do we do with that last line? For I tell you, unless the righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Once again, I think it's really important that we understand this well. 
So Jesus is engaging with the perception of the Torah and, and, and perception that those seem to think that he's come to abolish it. And he's like, nope, I've come to fulfill it. And I'm not gonna, I will fulfill it so much that heaven and earth will not disappear until everything is accomplished. Filled to the point that if you neglect the commands, you'll be light in my kingdom. And if you do them all, you'll be heavy in my kingdom because, and I always love that heavy is a good thing, um, because your righteousness has to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, once again, I've always heard this and taught it, I think myself, the Pharisees strive to obey 613 commands. That's their goal. And to build fences around those commands, like thousands of extra commands. And I always heard it, well, Jesus coming along saying, you got to do better than that, right? And of course we can't, so we need Jesus to cover that error for us. But I don't think, once again, I don't think that's what's exactly going on. So we got to work this one out. So central to the Pharisees is the conversation around righteousness. What is righteousness? Or in Hebrew, the zedekah. What we translate as righteousness, it carries with it the idea of living rightly. What is right and just? Leading the right kind of life. It actually often gets translated as charity or almsgiving and benevolence. And the Pharisee had distilled righteousness down and one of the things that they taught and, 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 and most of it was related to outward acts. If you want to be righteous, here are the outward acts you need to be doing with your life. And they put a heavy emphasis on three, which was prayer, fasting, and almsgiving or charity. Now, here's what I think Jesus is doing in this line. There is a righteousness taught by the Pharisees and there is a righteousness that Jesus has come to teach. And as Jesus stated, one that fulfills which I would say, rightly interprets and teaches all that the Torah had intended for us since the beginning. And his righteousness will exceed that. It will be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And the righteousness that the Pharisees speak of is nothing like the righteousness that God actually is speaking of through the Torah and the prophets. If anything, the prophets come along and actually condemn quite a bit of the Pharisees' life. And I think Jesus is essentially saying the whole Pharisaic project is wrong. Their whole approach, an indictment on what in this day was the dominant form of piety and righteousness. Like the Pharisees kind of rule the day and the teaching of Israel at this moment. And that's why he starts with do not think, because there was such a dominant view of interpreting the Torah this way and teaching that the, and throughout the rest of the nation in such a way that it made what Jesus was saying sound so outrageously different that the people concluded he must be rejecting the Old Testament altogether. And here's a good part. For the rest of the chapter, he will, beginning in chapter, and into the, into the beginning of chapter 6, he will critique the whole Pharisee worldview. It's a heavy emphasis of going, hey, you've heard it said, some kind of outward action. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, which are heavy commands to begin with. And then he will use lighter teaching, predominantly out of Leviticus, to go, but I tell you, as Leviticus says, don't hate your brother. I tell you, as, Levit- or as, or as um, Exodus says, don't covet your, your neighbor's wife. Don't, don't have that desire. Don't, don't lust after your, your, uh, another's wife or another woman or whatever it is. Don't, don't have that internal of you. And he will use lighter laws to speak of internal, internal realities equal to these external heavy things like murder and infidelity. And he's really pointing out the thing he will constantly critique the religious leadership of, which is, hey, your outward appearance 
doesn't match your inward reality. And here's the kicker. He will directly address their big ones by chapter 6, where he gets into prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which are three big ones for the Pharisees, of going, hey, here are the ones that you guys just do for performance. You are hypocrites. So Jesus is going to give five or six ways of how this interpretation should work. And that his covenant righteousness of what the Torah is about is profoundly different than what the Pharisees had ever been teaching. And just because you're not murdering doesn't mean you're righteous. <laughs> just because you're not committing adultery doesn't mean you're righteous. And because Jesus, and I would argue that the Torah, is after the righteousness of the heart, that's with the Messiah, right? The Torah will be written where? When, when the new covenant comes. Anybody know their Jeremiah well? It'll be written where? On the hearts, right? Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will know me from the least to the greatest, declares the world. Uh, the Lord, the work that Jesus came to do was a renovation of the heart that never truly came under the Old Testament. Now, that's some heavier theological parsing out. And some of you want to know, well, what do we do with the law today? Well, that's a great question. And the book of Acts and Paul and Romans and others address that. Matthew 5 doesn't. So I'm not going to tackle that right now. You may want me to, but I'm not going to. We'll get some moments in Matthew that might be able to, to unpack that. But I do think there's wonderful ways that, that what this is leading to really applies to our reality. And the first is that because Jesus will begin down this road of talking about sort of, I would argue, the renovation of the heart, it changes how we see everyone. It starts removing our, and I think the church, it's our ability to fake people out. He's going to deal with internal heart reality, and we won't be able to say to ourselves, well, that person's a worse sinner than me. Jesus has taken that category away. So you, you murdering is not the question of how righteous you are, it's... What's going on in your heart? But too often we play the righteousness game. We play that jockeying game. We play it around things like doctrine, right? Only if you ascribe to a very specific set of doctrine with no room for mystery or disagreeing opinion. If you disagree, you're not really a Christian, right? We draw those lines. Jesus is like, that has nothing to do with how I define righteousness or moral purity, Sometimes when we talk about moral purity, we often reduce purity to sexual righteousness. And purity is so much bigger than that throughout all of the teaching of God. And we've taken righteousness and narrowed it down to that. And we set lines like, don't do this. This is too far. If you've done this, you're, you're a wretched sinner. But if you haven't, you're fine. And Jesus came, that's the game of the Pharisee. And Jesus came to blow it up. See, that's not an internal disposition. That might be the fruit of some things going on, but that's not heart. Boundary lines. If you don't show up to church a certain number of times a month, you're not a good Christian or something like that. You're not righteous. You know what? It's better if you just show up, even if you're fighting with your spouse and you're sitting there stewing the whole sermon, right? And every point Chris makes, you're like nudging, being like, this one's for you. It's like... Is that, is that really righteousness? Or virtue signaling? We live in a day where you don't actually have to be righteous anymore. You just have to be seeming righteous. 
As long as you say or post something, it's fine. And the second, I think it changes how we see ourselves. Jesus will play this out throughout his Sermon on the Mount as well. We like to excuse our lighter sin and point out everybody else's heavier sins. Jesus flips that. He's like, hey, um, I know you can see like the sin and it looks like a speck in someone else's eyes, but your own sin should be like a big log right in front of yours. And it changes it. And my sin becomes the heavy sin no matter what. And everybody else's sin becomes the light sin no matter what. And if we agree to approach each other that way, where my default position is looking at my own life going, man, I'm a mess. And man, they've got a few problems, but maybe we could speak to those and we can admonish each other and build each other up. But if that is our approach, what a different community we can build. And we also don't divorce act and attitude. We don't divorce means and ends. This plays out quite a bit in sort of probably the political arena. We see political outcomes to be attained, but we're willing to have anger towards our political opponents or contempt for those that represent another party. And it's incompatible. It is Pharisaic work to say, well, we still got our desired outcome. We still abolished that thing. We still overturned that one thing. We still got that bill passed. We play that game. And we start ranking sins and doing everything else too. As a conservative, well, sexual sin, abortion, those are the things I fight for. But I'm going to kind of ignore teachings on greed or love of sojourner and the alien among us. We just kind of ignore. Or maybe we're liberal and all in on the marginalization and the poor, but tend to ignore sexual ethics and some of the things that Jesus also said about those kind of things and desires and lust and everything else. It doesn't matter how right your politics are. They are wrong if they're coming from an internal position of anger, animosity, and contempt. The means matters. It's not just the end of peace. It is the way of peace. And the kingdom place of the church is where the means matter more than just the ends. We are people who forsake the way of the world to do this differently and to live upside down, who live out inner realities that come through. Now, there's some good news to be had. I don't, I don't want to feel like, man, I, not only do I have to work on the outside, I've got to work on the inside. The beauty is that Jesus is not inviting us into a new way to make new lines, to have our lives become more legalistic, to find new goals and to try to make God happy with us or to find new ways to figure out who is on the inside or outside or anything along those lines. He's not doing that. But he's inviting his followers into a kingdom and one that is about the renovation of the heart. And it's not just knowing, love thy enemy, but a, a lifetime work alongside the Spirit of God where we actually obey that and live it out and thus fulfill the Torah in our lives. That's the truth. When we start forgiving wrongs, when we seek to be compassionate and gracious, so to anger, abounding in love, that the Spirit would produce in us all those things as he renovates the heart of us. And that Jesus has showcased the fullness of what it means to be a human and fulfilling all that the Torah had actually intended and now wants to do that in and through. They shall know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And he's promising in this new covenant a unique way in all of history that forgiveness of sins, of iniquity, would be remembered no more. And he would accomplish this through Jesus. 
in such a powerful way on the cross that now in us is the spirit of God doing the renovating work to produce us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, to remind us of all the instructions of Jesus and to continually work to restore the image of God in us as kingdom sons and daughters. That is what's happening. And so Jesus has come to live out the actual picture of what God had always intended the Torah to be understood as, and then he calls us into doing the same. But under the the forgiveness of sins, under the freedom that comes now of knowing we have a Father who deeply, deeply loves us. And how wonderful is that? He came to show us and teach us the fullness of the image of God, fully God, fully man, died for our brokenness of our image in us so that we can begin to be restored to the fullness of life, to life abundant. So when he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, because next week we're going to walk through a number of those instructions, he will then say, you are my disciples if you go do these things. Not hey, I know that sounded really hard. Don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. That's not how he finishes it. But he calls us into a new way of living with new hearts as his followers that the overflow of the Spirit would be an internal renovation that would lead to external change. And we can't divorce the two. And so we're the, we're the place. We, gosh, I hope, I hope we become a place where the Pharisaic way of life is just not a thing. I know our heart's dispositions is to go that way. But to be a place where, like, when someone screws up in some of the things that would be considered heavier, I mean, we see that in the same way that we would see somebody that's angry or blessed. I don't know if we do. I hope we do. But that we are a people that pursue legitimate internal change and know that the spirit in us is going to produce that if you are grafted into a vine your your life is going to produce fruit that's what's promised and so i look forward to next week as we unpack some of these ways that jesus will now take the torah and do some amazing things with but i wanted to make sure we we set up what jesus was doing So we can now kind of approach those texts, I think, a little differently. So we come to this table week in and week out and mark the moment that Jesus took things from death to life. Jesus ushered in a new covenant, a new way that God was going to relate to his people. That God not only showcased all that he was, but called what seemed like for the half, first half of the book of Acts, a renewal movement in the Jewish faith, and then eventually a grafting in of the Gentiles. A restoration of the image, a restoration of the vocation of God's people into this world. That is what he accomplished. But it was going to take his death. It's going to take a form of cleansing and atonement so that his spirit could finally be in us in a way that can never be in the past. And so we celebrate his death and what it was accomplished there, week in and week 